Um, we are, we've been going through Corinthians, and we'll continue that through a good part of the summer. Uh, we're in Corinthians 11, chapter 11, if you want to turn to it in your device or in your Bible. And um, this passage is, some theologians consider this one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the Bible. Um, it's, a, it's a big one. And it, and it has had a traditional interpretation, and then it's got some newer ways to understand it. And as a, as a pastor, I would read Corinthians 11 for years with a relatively traditional understanding of the verse. And the more I dug into it, the more I'm like, man, this is, this is not a simple passage. This is a hard one. And so I'm going to pray uh, because by way of introduction, we're going, to, we're going to dig into it. We're going to figure out what some things you can know, some things you can't know. Um, maybe I'll offend some of you, which wouldn't be the first time. And uh, maybe I will make some of you happy. Maybe I'll make some of you sad. Uh, I want to remind you before we pray that we have a, a way to believe in this church. We say in the essentials, we have unity. Where do you find the essentials? You find the essentials of some of the early statements of the Christian creed. The Apostles' Creed that we state during baptism. Athanasius' Creed. You could also say the Nicene Creed. Uh, I liked uh, Billy Graham did a, uh, when he was doing his Lausanne Covenant, they had a, a really good statement of faith. Uh, you could look that one up online. The, you know, these kinds of statements, the, these state out the essentials. But in the non-essentials, we have diversity. So there will be parts of the scripture that you'll go, hey, I don't see it that way, Pastor. And I'm like, well, if you're not talking about the deity of Christ or the Trinity or salvation by grace through faith and Christ coming again, then we can have fellowship, right? We can have fellowship. And, um, but it says in the essentials, we have unity. In the non-essentials, we have diversity. But in all things, we show love. And that, that just says, this is, we're going to love one another, even if we don't agree. Because none of us will fully agree on ever, every uh, nuance of Scripture. I remember when I was studying uh, theology, I think this was when I was doing my undergraduate degree in systematic and historic theology, I, I was like, oh, there's at least two ways to see this passage. And the professor goes, well, actually, there's five ways to see this passage. I'm like, oh, gosh, that's, that's challenging. There's five ways? And in fact, it was really fun because our small group talked about uh, this passage this week, and one person in there came up with a, a, a theologian who saw it another way and said, look, I think there you can understand this by, by making quotes that the Corinthians were making this statement and Paul was responding this way, and the Corinthians were making the same, Paul was responding, well, well, that's an interesting way to view it. All to say is the first part of Corinthians 11 is a challenging passage if you dig into it, okay? So let's pray together and, and then um, we'll dig into it. Father, we are so grateful to have your word. And sometimes uh, because we didn't live 2,000 years ago uh, and we have to try to figure it out and it's not always so clear. It's like looking uh, looking back in time through glasses. And we, we ask that you give us grace to apply the things you want us to apply. 
And that in the process of looking at this passage, the wonderful parts about communion, the wonderful parts about uh, prophecy in the church, we ask that you would feed us, that you would speak to us, that you would nurture our hearts and souls so we would grow to love you more and love your word and love your gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope I've whet your appetite for this passage. So we're going we're gonna to launch in. Well, we can go back if you want there. Um, I'm going to read it, and you can look, look along. It says this. Uh, chapter 11 starts with what I think should have been in chapter 10, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And then he says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, the head of Christ is God, and the head and every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head covered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well as have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. We will stop there. We'll read from seven on in a minute. Um, Wow. I, you know, when I read this passage, I think of an, a, a time in my, my life where my, my son was dating his wife, wasn't his wife then, and she had had dreads. And dreads are really knotted up hair. If you, you know that, right? It's just, it looked good on her. But she's like, okay, I'm ready to be done with my dreads. You know what? You know how you get rid of dreads? You shave your head. So he goes out to the store and he shaves her head. And, uh, and I was thinking... She went from like looking like a hippie to looking like G.I. Jane. And um, it, it would like, okay. And so a couple of things you need to, we're going to unpack this. Okay, back. So the word head is kephale in the Greek. And kephale can mean just like a, a head, a head, an animal, head, and a person, a physical head. Or it can also have a meaning of source, like the head of a river, you know, and, uh, and, and so how you interpret this is a challenge. Head is used as a metaphor. And, and so when he says, we want you to realize that the head of every man uh, is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head, you, you start to struggle a little bit with this and because one is they, like the early church fathers they struggle with this because it's like well this how we interpret this could even affect our theology of the trinity because the 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 church developed a theology that said there's three persons one essence and how how, do, how does that work how, how is god the head of christ is the head of christ is god how does that work and I, so I want you to know, I think, 
I'm going to tell you the way I understand it. The traditional way to understand it is a very pretty strong authority figure, okay? Like, woman, you got to listen to me because I'm your head, right? Right? You, and you've seen people do this over the years, haven't you? You've seen people use this passage to, to exercise, and we'll talk, it talks about authority in the next part we're going to read, exercise this kind of hierarchy over women. You need to know, too, that, and, and some translations, when we read the next part, they shift it to husband and wife. Because the word for husband and wife and the word for men and women in the Greek is the same. It's the context that dictates what, when it's husband and wife. So you, your translation, you might read it with man and woman, and then you switch to another translation, and it says husband and wife. And you go, well, which one? Well, the interpreters are going, well, we think that part is dealing with husband and wife. We think this part, this part is talking about men and, and women. The other way you need to realize before I go into the way I, I see that passage is Paul is going back to Genesis. He's reflecting on the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis 2 unpacks this where he talks about Adam... He names all the animals, and he didn't fall in love with a horse, okay? Come on, that is a little bit of a joke. I've read news articles about people that love horses so much, or people want to marry their pet something or other, right? I mean, you read those too? Am I the only weird one that reads those? Uh, like, I want to marry my computer. I'm in love with a doll, okay? Like, <laughs> wow. Well, I'm so glad Adam didn't do that. If he'd have fallen in love with a horse, we never would have got woman. Because then God says, I'm going to make a suitable helper for you. And the passage that we translate rib really is better translated like this part of the side. Like this, and, and, and people that really drill down on this say, you know what, there was, in doing this thing, not just, oh, I took a rib out, but I took this side, there was something that, that connotes some kind of equality between men and women. And so I think one of the best ways to understand this is to realize that the head of every man is Christ because we were created. When you look at the beginning, it says, let us create man in our image. That the very creation of humanity involved the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think it's more than just a majestic we. I think it is, is a, a, a snapshot of the Trinity and that Christ was involved in creating man. And it says, the head, the source of every woman is man. What is he saying? He said, women came from man. And the head of Christ is God. Why? Because God in the incarnation was involved with creating Jesus. I like that silence because I don't know if you're agreeing or disagreeing. And to me, it doesn't matter because I told you in the essentials we have unity. And, and so 
I think the best way to understand this is to understand it more of it as a source or coming from rather than a rigid hierarchy. And, I'll, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Let's, let's read on. It says this. A man ought not to cover his head since the, he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. Meaning, again, woman came from man. Source. For man did not come from women, but women from man. Neither was man created for women, but women for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Some add as a sign of authority because this is a really difficult passage. So they're trying to figure it out. So women ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Do you know I spent more time on this message than any message I've preached for a while? I mean, I've read pages and pages in comedy. I'm just like, what the heck? And like, there's way, what about the angels? Oh, some people say, oh, it's because the angels are watching. One interpretation I, I was reading was fascinating because it said angels, Jesus said, will be neither marrying nor given in marriage. We will be like the angels when we, in the new creation. That means there's There's children here, okay? So, so Paul, the one theologian who I really respect, Gordon Fee, was speculating there was some confusion between men and women, that women were not doing something that was a part of saying, I'm a woman, and were doing something a little bit more like a man, and they were claiming some kind of status as you will have in the future kingdom, in the present. And when you study theology, just to get your little theological brains going, they call that realized eschatology, or some people call it hyper-realized eschatology. It was like this guy was listening to this pastor, and he was teaching his church. He's praying for a cancer-free zone. Like, he, he literally was praying that when, that in his church, people could walk in and the cancer would be gone. I mean, that was, that sounds so cool, doesn't it? Be like, oh, don't do chemo, just go to his church, walk in and... That's a hyper-realized eschatology. Because in the future kingdom, it will be a cancer-free zone. There will be no more tears. But now, we live in the era where the kingdom is both now and not yet. And so sometimes God manifests healing and we hear of miracles and we pray for people and we see it and sometimes it doesn't happen. And, and the pastor was very good-hearted. He wanted the best for his people. I mean, his, his wife passed away from cancer. And so some speculate that the women in Corinth were, were doing something, claiming something that was available in the future and not distinguishing between the sexes as men and women. And there was some kind of sign that women were supposed to wear. But let's read on. I'll start back at verse 9. Neither was man created for women, but women for man. 
It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent from man, nor is man independent of women. For as women came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourself, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering? If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. A couple things I, I want you to notice. Um, it's, it is a little confusing, isn't it? Like, wait, because some of the commentaries I read, they talked about hairstyles as a covering. Because it says down below, women were giving long hair as a covering, and it's a disgrace for man to have long hair. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing this, and the Apostle Paul actually took a Nazarite vow, which required him not to cut his hair. So you're like, well, when you take a Nazarite vow, it's not, it's not inappropriate because you vowed not to cut your hair until then he shaved it later. So everything I read said we don't know what a head covering was. Okay? We don't know. But you do have a lot of church traditions still today that have women cover their head because of this. And, and one of the things you, you have to notice is, is this. Look how Paul wraps, sort of wraps this up. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, women, a woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also a man is born of a woman. But everything comes from God. Do you see how he comes back to this sort of more of an equality within the sexes? So if you're interpreting it more of a traditional sense where there's an authoritative headship, and he's, he's making it a hierarchy. He's flattening it out in the end because I don't think he wants people to get that meaning. But if you insist on that interpretation, and I'll respect whatever you insist on, you better memorize Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Because most people are not going to argue for headship in society. They're only going to argue it for a husband and wife. So that's why translators will translate the second part of the passage we read as husbands and wives. And I'm saying if you're going to argue for headship, then be willing to lay your life down for your spouse. Because that's what Christ did for the church. Carry the cross every day. Get up and serve. Show sacrificial love. If she doesn't show love to you, doesn't matter because that's what we did to Christ. And you just keep laying down your life over and over and over. And here's the good news, guys. Even if you don't take more of an egalitarian position on this passage, we still have to do that. So we're, we don't get out of Ephesians. It's sacrificial love over and over and over. And one of the other things that... Uh, that I think you need to take away from this passage 
the, the Apostle Paul in the end, he talks about, he says, this is, this is a practice in the church. He's not giving an imperative. He's not giving a command. And the saddest part for me about this passage is that in interpreting it, if this strong male hierarchy, churches stopped practicing what he was trying to teach. Women have the ability to pray and prophesy in the church. And one of the things I learned from my many years of theological education is that prophecy has two meanings. It means you can foretell, hey, this is going to happen. You see that in the book of Acts where these two female prophets come and they tell Paul he's going to suffer. But it's also forthtelling. It's proclaiming the word of God like preaching. And so when the apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said he's giving some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. And then we use Corinthians 11, to hold back what they call the office of a pastor, when the Apostle Paul is saying, I just want it to be done right. It's like, if you're going into a construction site, you better wear your hard hat. I don't show up to a wedding or a funeral unless I have my suit on. There are certain times where it's appropriate to, appropriate to dress a certain way, you go to the hospital, everybody wears their white coat. If your doctor comes in without a white coat, you go, are you really a doctor? Because it signifies authority. It signifies a position. Somehow, this covering signified, I, I, I'm, I'm doing it right. And there's an argument you can make that in that culture, women covered their heads then you, you can, I've read enough to realize there's the argument that it wasn't universal. So I don't know what the head covering was, okay? I don't know. And if you want to get into the Greek, it literally says head bowed down, and it comes from passages in the Septuagint, where in the Hebrew it talked about a covering, and they translated in the Greek as head bowed down. So Paul talks about head bowed down. And they're like, oh, that made it even more confusing. Thank you, the Apostle Paul. Because I didn't live 2,000 years ago. But church, God has given gifts to the body of Christ, men and women. And the Apostle Paul just wanted them to be used right. He wasn't banning women in the church. And, and I just got to say ladies. And somebody told me, you shouldn't say ladies anymore. I don't know about that. I mean, what's up with that? Like, what? Women? Ladies? I don't know. I'm sorry. For how the church historically has kept the thumb down on your gifts. When I studied the history of missions, you would see God using women on the mission field because they couldn't be, they weren't allowed to be used in their sending countries. They would plant churches, they would start movements, they would do all this stuff. 
because God's gifted and called both men and women in the church. And if you hold a different view, that's fine. But he's talking about in our worship services, women have the ability to speak. That's why we have a female pastor in the church who's gallivanting around America right now with her family. And, uh, you know, God has given gifts to both men and women. And we want to honor them and use them. And we don't require head coverings because we really can't figure out what that was. And I think it was a cultural practice. And so we... We don't do it. I mean, his, historically in the church, uh, pants were seen the same way. Uh, when I was in, in, when I was in um, Holland, there was a, a family, and he was an elder in the church, and she was from a very closed brethren movement. And I didn't know. They, they educated me on brethren. Brethren started a movement in England. It spread to America, very popularized by a Bible by N.J. Darby. And, and she said... Um, she said, when my grandfather would come over, I would have to run upstairs and put a dress on because he did not believe it was appropriate for a woman to wear slacks. And, and so sometimes we get, these kinds of things influence us. And then when he'd leave, she'd put her pants back on. I mean, that's just how it worked. And, um, I... I believe that this is talking about a source, where it comes from. You're, if you want to do a traditional interpretation, you're fine with me because it's not an essential. But I do believe whatever you do theologically, the, agree that the Apostle Paul is empowering both men and women to speak on his behalf, both prayers and prophecy, in the gathered community. And this passage has been used to stop that. And that's sad. That's sad. I'm late. We have to wrap up. I'm going to read quickly. Paul then deals with favoritism in the church. He talks about how the poor were not getting food. Some were fasting, feasting, and others were going hungry. And we're just going to read this very quick. I'm just going to read part of it. So... Um, well, I'll just read the whole thing to you. He says, uh, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings are doing more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as the church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another one gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or is it you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism for death. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when you are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Everyone who's hungry should eat and eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give you further instructions. I just want to say a few comments on communion, and then we're going to have communion together. Um, How to examine and discern. So there are some traditions in the church that only take communion a couple times a year because they take it so seriously, they feel they need three months to prepare for it. But the earliest tradition said that they would celebrate this sometimes as a meal every time they gathered. So our church does it almost every Sunday when we come together. And, And how do you examine yourself? Well, for years, I believed it was what you believed about the wafer. Hey, if you don't believe the right stuff about the the wafer and the juice, and so if you're Catholic, you believe it completely transforms. If you're Lutheran, you believe it somehow transforms. If you're Reformed, you believe it's, you know, Christ is present there spiritually. And if you're Baptist, you just think it's a sign or symbol, right? I mean, these are the options that you have within the passage. And uh, I told you, I think I told you last week, I think there's a, the Corinthians 10 talks about a fellowship, a participation. There's, there's, a, there's a meeting with God. I think it's one of the best passages to talk about. There's something more than just remembrance. There's a, a Christ present here. But I think it's very clear when you look at both 10 and 11, when he lifts the bread, he's saying here that you are sinning against the body of Christ. He's not talking about your belief about the wafer. He's saying that there were people that were eating and having a feast and others that weren't, were going hungry. And, and that was not right. And there was judgment because they weren't recognizing the body. There was a guy named Robert Stamps. He was a chaplain at Robbins University years ago, and he wrote a wonderful song. It's, it's, it's old now, and it talked about God and man at table I sat down. And do you ever remember that? Anybody here? Yeah. And, and beg, he talked about beggars, martyrs, prostitutes, all coming to the Lord's table. And, and the Apostle Paul says you need to discern the body. And so sometimes I just look around at communion and I just say, these are, these are the family of God. These, these all are blood-bought brothers and sisters and children of God. And I don't stand above them. I stand with them. We are the church. And you can even do that for the larger body of Christ. And we recognize the body. That means sometimes when you know a body in China or some of these countries are suffering, you pray for that because we're suffering with them. And I think the wine symbolizes, I think the bread is more horizontal. I think the wine is more vertical. And it deals with that Christ is present in this time and in this place in a special way. And we meet him at this table. And it's a mystery. 
I don't try to figure it out. I, don't, I just say, I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to receive everything you have for me. And the other thing I think you need to do is you examine your heart. Because there's passages that talk about when you're holding unforgiveness, when you're holding bitterness. And if you're, if you're doing that, you, can, you say, Why, how can you come to the Lord's table when this table symbolizes the most radical forgiveness and freedom that's ever been bought? So I think we examine ourselves in two ways. The bread, recognizing the body, and our hearts. If we're holding unforgiveness, we're holding a grudge, if we're hating on people, we, we just need to let that stuff go. I think those are the two ways we examine ourselves. And last, lastly, we'll wrap this up. And I think you also need to remember the gospel. The gospel that's been preached, the gospel that Christ brought, and that we, we come and we proclaim his death as his people. Every time we come to this table, we're saying we need salvation. And if you're, a follow, if you're here and you're coming for the first time and you've never received the Lord, this meal is a picture of the sacrifice. Christ stretched out his arms on the cross. He died for our sins. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And all you have to do is say, Jesus, I want you as my Lord and Savior. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Forgive me afresh. I want to follow you. That prayer can change a life. And that's what we... That's what we proclaim every time we come to this table. So I've gone a little long today. I'm gonna, we're going to wrap up with communion and ministry time. And if there is something in your life uh, where you want prayer for, there was a uh, guy in our church that told me about his uh, sister having uh, pancreatic cancer and just you know, being a very short time to live. You can come for prayer for yourself. You can come for prayer for someone else. But we have, we're going to come for communion. We're going to have prayer ministry people uh, off to the sides, and they'll pray for whatever you want. Maybe it's something of bitterness that you've been dealing with and you want to just lay that down and let it go and you want to release. You want that uh, sense of being forgiven and forgiving others. Uh, whatever it is, please get prayer ministry. And I'm going to repeat the words now. So Father, we, before we do this, just prepare our hearts. Forgive us afresh. We acknowledge that we're just one small member in a large body of Christ and that we need you. And we want to come to this table and receive everything you have for us. For on the night that you were betrayed, you took bread and after giving thanks, you broke it. And you said, take and eat. This is my body which has been given for you. Do this and remember me. And in the same way, you took a cup. You said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink, and when you do this, remember me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the very death of Christ until he comes. Amen. Come, the table of the Lord is ready. Uh, just walk down one of these aisles. You can come back around and uh, take a minute and receive everything God has for you today. Prayer ministry people, come on up. You can come early so that you can offer prayer.